Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Charts with Dan. This week, we are looking at the weekend box office. As always, we've got the bad guys sneaking the number one spot. We've got the secrets of Dumbledore falling to number three. We also have a mixed bag when it comes to original movies. I have my thoughts on both how the performance was and what the expectations should be for original films. Before we get to any of that, though, I want to thank my partner here on the show, Carbon Health. I've been partnered with them for quite some time. It's because I actually believe in what they're doing, which is to help make healthcare accessible and affordable. Mara, my partner, if you don't know, she is a veteran. They were on the phone with Mara this past week to talk about the veterans healthcare system and the VA uh, and gaps in treatment and where they might be able to fill in some stuff. If you want to know more, you can check the Carbon Health app where you can find the locations of their physical clinics. You can also do telehealth where you can talk to a provider uh, virtually so that you don't have to go to a physical location. And it's just a great resource to have if you're traveling a lot, if you're on the road, and you may need that service when you're away from your primary care provider. So as always, thank you so much to Carbon Health for your friendship and partnership here on the show. Let's look at the box office this weekend. And as I noted, The Bad Guys, this was not necessarily the pick for everyone to be the number one movie. I think a lot of folks actually thought, including me, that it was going to be a little bit closer than it was. But The Bad Guys overperforming a bit on its estimates, coming in just a shade under $24 million at $23,950,000. That is, if you're keeping track, the fifth highest box office opening of Sam Rockwell's career. I didn't do a full review for The Bad Guys because I actually didn't see it until yesterday. I thought it was a really cute movie. I think definitely aimed a little bit more towards the kids. They're the ones that I think are going to enjoy it most of all. But hey, you know what? It's an animated film. Some are those ones that can appeal to all ages. Some of them skew a little bit more towards kids. It certainly wasn't in the league of movies like The Minions, which I think are accessible only uh, to young audiences. It's also just an extension of the fact that family films continue to do well at the box office. Even going back to Crudes 2, when things were just barely open, this is one of the things that has actually been able to perform when other movies have struggled. So maybe not such a shocker that the bad guys takes that number one spot. That's another big win for Universal, who released it through the DreamWorks animation arm. At number two was Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which is continuing to hold well in its fourth week, maintaining that number two spot, dropping less than 50%, about a 47% drop with another $15.6 million. The big drop that we should talk about this week is Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which falls to third place in its second week of release here domestically and there were some folks last week that were saying that I, they thought I was a little premature in saying that Dumbledore uh, was a box office disappointment. I, I think that any hope that it was going to salvage some kind of a domestic performance uh, is long gone because that's just not going to happen. And when we look at this in the scope of the Wizarding World and second weekend drop-offs, it's the second worst drop-off for the franchise by percentage uh, domestically in its second weekend. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 did have the biggest franchise drop off in its second week at 72%. The difference being that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, just the weekend prior, had the biggest weekend in the history of ever uh, at that point at the domestic box office, whereas Fantastic Beasts The Secrets of Dumbledore did not. So having a disappointing debut followed by a steep decline is not good news for this movie domestically. It's a 66.8% decline officially. Uh, number three was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban 
Tenet at 62.7%, number four, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince at 62.1%, and number five, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 at 60.7%, but these are all movies that opened well uh, and performed well. That's not going to be the case here with The Secrets of Dumbledore. Also, something to note with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 and its second weekend, not only was it coming down from the high of having the biggest opening ever in the history of the domestic box office, it was also facing off against Captain America, the first Avenger, in its second weekend, which while it was not the most successful Marvel film, still was an early MCU film, so a lot of competition there in that second weekend for Deathly Hallows Part 2. And when we look at the track of the Fantastic Beasts franchise, let's take Harry Potter out of it because, you know, that is kind of a thing unto itself. I know they're tangentially related or actually a little more related than a lot of people would like at this point. But when we look at the Fantastic Beasts movies just in general, you can see this track. You have the first movie, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, there in blue. And they all start in the $20 million range from 20 to $29 million. But you can see the drop-off with The Secrets of Dumbledore. So through 10 days, you can see Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them had grossed $156 million. Its sequel, The Crimes of Grindelwald, dropped about $40 million off that pace. So through its first 10 days, it had grossed $116 million. And you can see here The Secrets of Dumbledore actually accelerating that fall. It's about $50 million off the pace of The Crimes of Grindelwald, having made just $67 million through 10 days. And if this kind of drop continues, we could see the movie struggling somewhat to get much above $100 million. I mean, if the bottom absolutely falls out, which we have a freight train coming down the tracks with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, you could see it struggling to make it to $100 million. But even by the Fantastic Beasts standards, the Secrets of Dumbledore is showing a steep decline in interest for this series and attendance for this series. And it's really hard for me to look at the franchise in general. We'll look at the worldwide numbers in just a moment, but domestic numbers are still pretty important. It's very hard for me to look at these numbers and see how in the world Warner Brothers, particularly under new management, when the last thing that Warner Brothers Discovery wants right now is a big high profile failure as one of their first new moves as a company, I just don't know how they greenlight another Fantastic Beasts movie. I'm, I, I'll be quite honest. It's obvious that the plan here is not working. Whatever they're doing is not working. And to just continue to pour money into these movies is something that I don't see Warner Brothers doing. And, you know, we'll talk in a minute about putting money uh, into projects that may not pay off financially, but pay off in other ways. I, I don't think that Fantastic Beasts is one of those either. I don't think that these are, you know, sad, woeful, misbegotten box office films that are so great, but nobody's going to see them. I don't think the fan base is happy with them, the ones that are still going to see them. Uh, the critics certainly aren't happy with them. Uh, the audience, the general audience doesn't really seem to be happy with them. So what we have here is a failed franchise. Some might say a failing franchise. I, I, I won't put that tag on the wizarding world just yet, but Fantastic Beasts... I think is at this point a failed franchise. And we'll see where they go from here. There are so many places. I was having a, a discussion with some of the folks over on Patreon this weekend. There are so many places that the Wizarding World can go from here. And I don't just mean running back to Harry Potter. I mean, you can do so many different kinds of stories. There's so many places that we haven't seen, uh, so many wizarding schools we haven't seen. Or even if you want to do something at Hogwarts, you can do an HBO Max series set at Hogwarts, just Wizard High School. Uh, and I think that you could find probably uh, a lot of success there. It's just you have to stray away from where you are. This is a franchise that is very inextricably linked with its creator. If J.K. Rowling wants to continue to assert her creative control over this franchise, what she's doing isn't really working. 
And so I think that Warner Brothers slash Warner Brothers Discovery is going to have a very difficult decision to make in the very near future about the future of this franchise and potentially coming at loggerheads with somebody who they have been very, very eager to please uh, through the last two decades or so. Looking at the rest of the top five, uh, we have two uh, kind of the big, much-hyped original films that were coming out this weekend at number four and number five. We have The Northman, which debuted to uh, almost $12.3 million from filmmaker Robert Eggers. And then we have The Unbearable Weight of massive talent the meta nick cage movie in fifth place coming in a little bit lower at least at the low end of its projections with 7.1 million dollars and there's been a lot of comparison with these two movies although it's not quite an equal comparison they both had very healthy marketing budgets but the northman had a budget around 80 million dollars the unbearable weight of massive talent had a budget around 30 million dollars so with the nick cage movie i think the path to profitability uh, is much more open because you don't have that much of a hurdle to jump over yes this is a bit of a disappointing opening from a box office perspective but i think also it's one of those movies that's going to do well on video on demand you should make back a healthy amount of money in the home market the streaming market i do think there's a little bit of monday morning quarterbacking going on particularly around the unbearable weight of massive talent because I think that it's very similar to Everything Everywhere All at Once. The budget is around the same. Uh, it didn't have that platform release necessarily, but I think all of the think pieces that are written about, you know, oh, the risk of releasing this Nick Cage meta movie, well, we just had a runaway success with Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is, I would argue, a much weirder and less mainstream movie uh, than the Nicolas Cage one, but also had a big marketing spend. Uh, the release strategy was a little bit different, but I think it's very easy to look back uh, at a movie that doesn't do well and say like, well, you know, they really should have known the risks going in. Well, yeah, of course you say that after you know that it maybe didn't do as well as some people would wanted. But when you have a surprise success, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, then a lot of those same think pieces are about the boldness of the strategy of investing in these filmmakers. And that's actually the angle that I want to take. And specifically, I want to take it when we talk about The Northman. The Northman was a big risk, much bigger than the unbearable weight of massive talent, because it is the most mainstream of Robert Eggers' movies, in my opinion. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily mainstream. The audience were of mouth was very mixed it got a b cinema score which means that a lot of people showed up and weren't quite sure what they were seeing but there have also been a lot of think pieces written there was one in particular uh, that ran in variety today that kind of ruffled my feathers a little bit that was talking about you know the perils of giving bloated budgets uh to art house films and first of all I don't think that the budget for The Northman was bloated. When I think of a bloated budget, I think of a movie like The Secrets of Dumbledore, which cost $200 million. And when you watch the movie, you're sitting there thinking, how in the world could this movie cost $200 million? The Northman actually looks twice as epic as if you want to talk about money on the screen, uh, The Secrets of Dumbledore uh, at less than half the cost. But the other thing that I want to talk about, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, show business is business. Uh, but I think that also means that films in many ways are investments. And there are a lot of ways for an investment in a film to pay off. Yes, there's the dollars and cents thing, and that's largely what this show is about. But there's more to that, I think, when it comes to the box office. And it comes down to which studios are going to greenlight what films at what price points. I applaud the fact that The Northman was budget. I would not say that that was a mistake. Did it connect to the amount of people that I'm sure uh, Regency and Focus, uh, who who produced and distributed the film, would have preferred that it did? I'm sure. I'm sure that's not the case. I'm sure they wish that more people would have seen it. But it's hard to look at that movie and say like, well, it was a mistake to make that movie. And I think it comes down to success and how you consider a movie a success. For example, when we talk about Blade Runner, and particularly, I'm sure when Warner Brothers talks about Blade Runner, they, as a studio, are very proud of that film because it was a groundbreaking and innovative 
film. And yet Blade Runner did not make a whole lot of money. It was a bomb. Uh, but in history, when we look at that, uh, I think the studio is proud of making that film because it advanced the craft of movie making in so many ways in a way that outlasted any box office receipts. And, you know, we live in this sort of social media world where it's all about this weekend at the box office and, and you know, this is the judgment that you have to draw based on these numbers. And I try not to do that on this show. That's one of the reasons that I like to do the show uh, the way that I do it on Mondays and kind of have a little bit of distance and think about it and say like, well, wait a minute, let's see how Weekend 2 does. And sometimes Weekend 2 proves that Weekend 1 was a, not a fluke uh, and that this movie really is going to bomb. Uh, sometimes that's not the case. We get things like The Greatest Showman, which just had so much success long term. If you write the book on The Greatest Showman after the first week, uh, then you definitely don't have the whole story on that movie. But I think something you can actually point to as an example where studios were right not to take a high profile a money loser and shy away from that filmmaker uh, is Alfonso Cuaron, who made a film called Children of Men back in 2006. Uh, it's very similar in many ways to The Northman. It was budgeted at around $76 million. It only made $70 million worldwide, so that was a money loser at the box office. And, you know, I think that a lot of these takes going around right now would say, oh, well, see, this is why you don't give these indie directors this kind of money for an original idea because look what happens. Well, the next film that Alfonso Cuaron made, which was seven years later, he got over $100 million to make it, and that movie was Gravity. It was another original sci-fi film. It grossed over $700 million worldwide, won seven Oscars, including Best Director. Obviously, a little bit more commercial than a movie like The Northman, but if a studio had shied away from Alfonso Cuaron, like I've seen some people saying, like, well, you don't give Robert Eggers that kind of money. Well, it depends on the movie, because he's a very talented filmmaker. He's made three movies that people are very excited about, that elicit strong reactions, positive and negative. And if you shy away from giving those kinds of filmmakers resources for projects that you think that they can execute, yes, commercially, but also creatively, then we really are going to be living in this world of only franchises and sequels and comic book movies, because that's the only thing the studio is going to be investing in. If you are one of those folks that is angry that no original movies come out, but you don't go see them in theaters, or you don't ever stream them, or rent them, or do whatever, then you you are part of the problem because it is a business, but also at the same time, studios will go where the money goes. And if we support these things, uh, whether it's in week one at the box office or week three of streaming, uh, then we're still supporting that film and showing that there is a market out there for them. So uh, yes, just seek out these movies, support them. I try to include them at the end of the show, but let's get back to the box office weekend and let's go to some of these smaller films. Uh, that you won't see on the other charts. These are the best per theater averages of the weekend. At number one is Petite Maman, the latest film by director Celine Sciamma, who did Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a stunningly beautiful film amongst other great works. It opened in four theaters to $11,000 per theater. The Jim Broadbent Helen Mirren film, The Duke, is in second place with $6,400 in four theaters, followed by the debut of The Bad Guys in over 4,000 theaters with nearly $6,000 per theater. Take Me to the River, New Orleans, which is a documentary about uh, New Orleans music and culture, uh, was in one theater and brought in nearly $5,000 in that one theater. And then Sonic the Hedgehog 2, still in the top five when we look at per theater averages in its fourth week, dipping below 4,000 theaters when we come to the theater count, but still over $4,000 uh, in each of those theaters that it's playing in. When we look at the weekend, as far as the limited release films themselves, these are films that were in uh, what may be called the specialty box 
box office, playing in 1,000 theaters or fewer. At number one is Icomo SL, which is another international film programmed into a smaller number of theaters, but obviously uh, connected uh, with the audiences in those theaters, bringing in $630,000. It was kind of a slow, sleepy week at the specialty box office because Petite Maman with $45,000 was in second place, followed by We're All Going to the World's Fair in 36 theaters with $27,000. The Duke at number four with its $25,000 gross and then unplugging in 101 theaters at $20,000 thousand five hundred dollars which when you look at it from a theater to theater average not so great but hey it's it's on a top five list so you know let's take our wins where we can get it looking at the 2022 limited release top grocers there's actually no change from last week nothing new really breaking onto the chart bts permission to dance remains at number one followed by cyrano the worst person in the world and kgf chapter two everything everywhere all at once remains at number five with its gross frozen at the time it left limited release then we have uma radhashayam the 2022 oscar shorts the cashmere files and the godfather 50th anniversary rounding out the top 10 tracking the road to recovery as we compare this weekend's box office with both the 2021 box office and then a composite average of the weekends from 2015 to 2019 we still remain well above where we were last year but well below the average for the previous five years before 2020 and the box office shutdown you can see that next weekend we have a big spike and that's because even when you average out the numbers this is where we see the debut of films like avengers endgame uh, in that last weekend in april with marvel jumping in early uh, and getting a jump on the summer so we don't have a shot of reaching that total uh, this upcoming weekend of course in two weekends we have the opening of dr strange and the multiverse of madness which is going to officially kick off the summer movie season and that's when i think we have our best shot at really uh, kind of peaking above that blue line like we did with the release of the batman earlier this year looking at the box office market share for 2022 these are all movie ticket sales year to date including movies that came out last year sony and warner brothers both lose one percent of market share which goes over to universal largely based off of the debut of the bad guys paramount stays at 20 percent share disney fox and mgm ua both remain at five percent market share lionsgate keeps two and then the other category with six percent disney fox of course uh, this upcoming weekend will be the last one where they have a market share this small because I'm guessing they're going to make up quite a bit of that with the debut of the latest MCU film uh, in that first weekend in May. Before we continue, I want to thank the sponsor for today's show, Athletic Greens. I've been talking about Athletic Greens a lot, and it's because I enjoy Athletic Greens a lot. It's something that I've integrated into my daily routine. So many people take all different kinds of multivitamins, whether it's a bunch of pills or a bunch of powders. You have to go to a bunch of different stores, try to collect them all, check off your list. Oh, do I have this vitamin? Do I have that probiotic? It can be so expensive, so time-consuming, and so complicated. Why go through all of that when you can get Athletic Greens? It's all together in one pouch that you take once a day. As I said, I've integrated it into my daily routine. I can throw it into a shake if I'm making a shake in the morning, or I can just put it into a cup of water because it not only has great stuff like vitamins and probiotics that are good for you, it also tastes good, which is sadly something that is left out of the equation a lot of times when we talk about multivitamins. I started taking Athletic Greens because I am focusing a lot on myself this year. I'm trying to work out more. I'm also focusing on things like gut health to improve my overall health, not 
just on the outside, but on the inside. And Athletic Greens has so much stuff, including probiotics, that my body will actually absorb that helps me achieve those goals. It's also lifestyle friendly and contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no artificial anything, while still tasting good. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Dan. Again, that is athleticgreens.com Dan, D-A-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And I want to thank Athletic Greens for sponsoring today's show. Let's step outside of the domestic marketplace and see what the top five movies internationally were this past weekend. And even though it's struggling domestically, The Secrets of Dumbledore remained the top draw internationally with another $38.3 million. KGF Chapter 2 from India at number two with $19.7 million. Then we have Sonic the Hedgehog 2 still performing strongly in third place at $19 million, followed by The Lost City at $17.1 million, and The Northman in a few international markets with $6.2 million. So when you take the international marketplace you smash it together with the domestic we get the top five films worldwide and fantastic beast the secrets of dumbledore was number one with another 52 million dollars followed by sonic the hedgehog 2 with 34 million the bad guys which has been playing internationally for a few weeks now is at number three worldwide with 29.8 million followed by the lost city with 21.4 million and kgf chapter 2 with 19.7 million so when we look at the box office for 2022 domestically this is what we get the batman remains number one easily with 367 million dollars sonic the hedgehog 2 just edged out uncharted actually i think when the actuals came in uh, earlier today to become the number two film domestically for the year at 146.2 million dollars uncharted bumped down one spot to 145.9 million dollars but let's take just a moment to recognize here that the number two and three films of 2022 domestically are both fairly well regarded maybe a little bit more on sonic 2's side than uncharted but certainly not disastrously regarded video game movies that is a a far cry no pun intended from where we may have been in years past at number four is The Lost City, which jumps up to that fourth spot. It's at $85.3 million. It's done very well. It's had a good legs, as we like to say, as it continues to perform weeks after it opens. That bumps Scream down to number five. Morbius stays at number six with $69.2 million. Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore jumps up three spots. It's now just behind Morbius at $67.1 million. So it'll continue to climb the charts. It should at least outdo Morbius. Boy, that is a race of just two disappointments. Dog is at number eight. It drops down one slot. Jackass Forever drops down one spot. Death on the Nile drops down one spot. I don't think we'll have anything new that gets added next week, but then Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness uh, could be coming in as high as I mean, number two. We'll see how big that opening weekend is. When we look at the box office for 2022 worldwide, a couple of small adjustments. We have the Batman at number one still with $758 million, followed by the Battle at Lake Chung Gen 2, Too Cool to Kill at number three, Uncharted at number four, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is getting very close to that $300 million mark at number five. Right behind Sonic at number six, we have Fantastic Beast: The Secrets of Dumbledore at $280 million, roughly. And I know a lot of folks have said, like, well, that's going to be the, the thing that really bails out the movie is that worldwide gross. And yes, it is likely to bypass Sonic 2. Keep in mind that it is a $200 million budgeted movie compared to Sonic's $90 million, so it costs more than twice as much. And it also has to gross nearly $400 million to even start approaching break-even 
even in the theatrical window. It's expended a lot of its revenue worldwide. It actually opened worldwide in a lot of markets before it hit here domestically. Uh, it's not doing well in China because nothing's really doing well in China because there are so many shutdowns and lockdowns because of resurgence in COVID-19 there. So even given the numbers that we're seeing from Fantastic Beasts, I just don't think it's going to be enough because the thing is so damned expensive for it to end up doing well in the theatrical marketplace, which all of the other films, absent these last two, have been able to do fairly easily. So I don't see this big redemption coming uh, from the worldwide marketplace for Fantastic Beasts. It may not be as disappointing as the domestic take, but I don't think it's going to be a lifesaver as we've seen for other movies like Terminator Genesis, for example, which was largely driven by how it did in China. When we take today's date, roll it back 365 days, we have our worldwide chart for the previous calendar year. Spider-Man No Way Home remains number one with almost $1.9 billion. Less than half of that is The Battle at Lake Chongjin at number two, No Time to Die at number three. Batman continuing to sneak up on James Bond. Can it overtake that gross? We'll see. Currently, it's at number four. F9 is at number five with about a month left on the chart before it graduates as a full 365-day member. The Battle at Lake Chongjin 2 at number six, followed by Venom, Let There Be Carnage at number seven, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings at number eight. Sing 2 actually bumps one slot up above Too Cool to Kill, which had some box office adjustments. So it's now currently at number nine with just over $400 million, but literally less than a million dollars behind it. Statistically, they're basically tied. Is Too Cool to Kill from China with 73 days on the chart. Before we go to the streaming charts, and I actually did a couple of adjustments, I actually want to have a box office flashback we go back to a previous weekend in box office history. And this week we're going to April 16th through the 18th, 2010, which was the 16th week of the year, much like we just had. And again, it's tying in. Last week we had a Nicolas Cage movie. This week we have a Nicolas Cage movie. 12 years ago, it's hard to believe, Kick-Ass opened at number one to $19.8 million. Nicolas Cage with a supporting role in that movie as Big Daddy. In its fourth week, How to Train Your Dragon almost kept that number one spot with $19.6 million, followed by the Steve Carell Tina Fey comedy Date Night at $16.7 million. Death at a Funeral, which was an American remake of a previous film, at number four with $16.2 million, and then the 2010 remake of Clash of the Titans at $15.3 million in its third week. This is one of those times I've talked about there was a period in my life where I wasn't going to a lot of movies. This is one of them, and it's a rare case where I look at one of these box office flashbacks and realize I did not see any of these five movies in the theaters. I've since gone back and seen a few of them. I'm glad that I'm in a much more uh, consistent pattern now. Now I see some movies I wish I didn't, uh, but that just kind of is weird when you go back and look at your life and say, oh, 12 years ago, I really wasn't going to the movies that much. I'm very happy to be going to the movies a lot more now. So let's look at the streaming charts, and I've done a little bit of shuffling around. So we're going to start first with the iTunes charts. So these are the movies that people are buying, renting, etc. through their Apple accounts. At number one is Spider-Man No Way Home, available for purchase or rental. That keeps the number one spot. At number two is The Batman, which debuted on HBO Max. It's also available for purchase and also premium video on-demand rental. Sing 2 remains at number three. Dog is now available for purchase, and it takes the number four slot. Jackass Forever, now available for purchase and rental, is there at number five. Infinite remains at number six. Marry Me comes in at number seven, available for purchase and rental, followed by The Matrix Resurrections returning to the chart at number eight. House of Gucci staying on the chart at number nine. And Blacklight entering the chart, available for purchase. Just in time, we'll see at the end of the show for another Liam Neeson movie 
to hit theaters. Boy, he's, he's been busy. Let's turn our eyes now to Netflix, who's been in the news this past week for all the wrong reasons. Has the service peaked? We don't quite know the answer to that yet, but let's see what people have been watching with my adjusted Merle metrics. So I take the hours watched that they report, I divide them by the number of available hours, and we get a number that's uh, kind of a potential finished views, PFV number, just so we can sort of equalize the playing field between movies and TV shows. And we see The In-Between, which again is not a movie that is on Netflix domestically. It was released on a different service here domestically, but is the most watched thing globally for the week of April 11th through April 17th, with a potential finished view number of 18.7, followed by an original Netflix movie that did debut last week, which is Choose or Die, with a PFV number of 11.3. The Netflix series The Elite, which is a teen drama out of Spain, takes a jump. It has a PFV number of 10, which is pretty high for a television show, followed by The Taming of the Shrewd, a Netflix original with a PFV number of 9.1. Anatomy of a Scandal, a shorter run Netflix series with a PFV of nine. The Elite was number one with most hours watched, but right behind it was the show in sixth place, which is Bridgerton season two. It clocked 66.6 million hours watched, but has a PFV number of 7.92. That probably means that a lot of people were watching it, but it's not experiencing the same surge that it did because most people now have watched this second season, or at least the big rush of people have. The Netflix series, The Ultimatum season one is at number seven with a PFV number of 7.90, followed by Yaksha Ruthless Operations, a Netflix movie with a PFV of 7.8. The Netflix movie Furiosa, not Furiosa, is at number nine with a PFV of 7.6. And then the only non-Netflix original here, the Nicolas Cage film A Score to Settle, which I also don't think was streaming here domestically, is at number 10 with a PFV of 5.7. I mentioned that I made some changes, and one of those changes is I got rid of the Amazon chart, and that's because I've decided to start reporting Nielsen's streaming numbers. So in case you don't know Nielsen, who is the company that's done television ratings for decades and decades and decades, started reporting streaming numbers last year, and I've been kind of looking at the numbers. The only bummer here is that HBO Max has opted not to include themselves in these numbers. There's a speculation that it's because their programming is available on both traditional HBO HBO and on their streaming service, so they feel like they may be at a bit of a disadvantage and that their streaming numbers might look low. For whatever reason, HBO Max is not included on this list, and so I was sort of hesitant to start reporting the numbers, but at the same time, it is inclusive of things that we don't have numbers for here on the show, uh, like Disney Plus and Hulu, so I'm going to start reporting these numbers. Now, the big caveat on these things is that there is a delay in reporting, and it's a delay of about a month. So keep that in mind, and I'm going to try to sort of contextualize these numbers each week as we go through. This is not for last week or even the week before. These are numbers from about a month ago, but I do think that they provide a more holistic look at the different services than just sort of picking and choosing a few as I've been doing here on the show. So first of all, these are the top 10 most watched streaming movies, and I'm very glad that Nielsen uh, does delineate these things between shows and movies. This is just in the United States for March 21st through 27th. They define a view as two plus minutes watched. The Adam Project had 19.9 million hours watched in its third week on their chart. It was the number one film, followed by Turning Red with 16.2 million hours watched. It came out the same week as The Adam Project, uh, so it also was in its third week on the Nielsen chart. Then at number three is Encanto, and it just goes to show you just how popular this movie has been on streaming for Disney. In its 12th week of release, it was still the third most watched streaming movie across all services that participated uh, in this survey. 
followed by Rescued by Ruby on Netflix in its second week, Black Crab on Netflix in its second week, A Walk Among the Tombstones from Liam Neeson streaming in its second week. Then you had Disney Plus's Cheaper by the Dozen with 4.6 million hours watched. So even though that is an original film, you can see that some of the library content from Disney Plus still drawing a much larger audience. Deep Water on Hulu in its second week on the chart here, drawing just under 4 million hours watched. So even though that was a buzzy movie, you can see that it wasn't quite hitting the reach of some of the other ones at this point in its release cycle, again, because not as many people have Hulu as have some of these other streaming services. Windfall from Netflix was in its second week on the chart, coming in with 3.3 million hours watched. And then at number 10, I put it as in its 121st week of release because it's Moana from Disney Plus with just over 3 million hours watched. And this really does give us a good look at how Disney Plus is able to effectively employ their library because we have a movie in Moana and I looked it's been streaming on Disney Plus since it debuted back in 2019 it's just that popular that's how Disney Plus is bringing in a lot of business and a lot of eyeballs it's not just the new stuff they're doing it's the library and we've talked about that the fact that Netflix's library has dwindled over the years because all of it's going back to a lot of the original rights holders who are starting their own streaming services we see here even with Encanto and, and particularly with Moana for a lot of people it's not just what's come out this week it's favorites that they can return to and I think that's one thing that keeps Disney Plus fairly well positioned when it comes to the quote-unquote streaming wars. Let's look now at the top 10 most watched streaming shows. Again, this is for March 21st through the 27th. Now, these are not delineated by season. So we see here Bridgerton on Netflix with 42.4 million hours watched. I think those numbers are going to go up as we get more into the release cycle of Bridgerton season two. Remember, these are on a delay. Is it Cake from Netflix at 19.7 million hours watched, followed by The Last Kingdom with 16.2 million hours. NCIS, which is a library show on Netflix with 12.5 million hours watched. Our old friend Coco Melon, 10.7 million hours watched. The fifth most watched streaming show in the U.S. by Raw Hours Watched. Followed by Criminal Minds at number six. Inventing Anna at number seven. Good Girls at number eight. Bad Vegan at number nine. And Call the Midwife at number 10 with 6.9 million hours watched. And even here, when you look at the shows that people are watching, you see the importance of library content. Because yes, Netflix does have all 10 of these slots, but NCIS... Coco Melon, Good Girls, Call the Midwife, Criminal Minds, five of those 10 are library things. These are things that weren't produced by Netflix or are being distributed by Netflix. These are shows that Netflix has the rights to have on its streaming service. And you can see they're five of the top 10 most watched streaming shows in the US. So very important, this library stuff for every streaming service. And I think of all of the different uh, challenges that Netflix has to face right now, one of them is the fact that they're losing a lot of that library content. And maybe a lot of the stuff that they're producing isn't able to replace all of those numbers that could be why they're losing subscribers. And and it's certainly something to keep an eye on as we move forward. So that wraps up the show for this week. It's a very quiet weekend at the box office, the calm before the multiverse, if you will. So if you haven't seen a lot of these original movies like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, this would be a good chance to perhaps catch up on that. Or you can maybe see some of these movies. Liam Neeson has another movie coming out. It's called Memory. It's from Martin Campbell, who directed uh, Casino Royale. He's directed a lot of good movies and also Green Lantern. Uh, and no, this is not the same movie as Blacklight. That movie came out less than three months ago, we've got a, another Liam Neeson movie. There's a movie called Hatching, which is a super creepy movie uh, that came out of Sundance. I was able to see it earlier this year. If you like that A24 type horror or body horror, I think you're really going to enjoy that. It's available on limited release and also premium video on demand, so you can support it in a couple of different ways. I definitely recommend that. Gaspar Noé, who is a very provocative director, has another film opening this weekend just in New York 
called Vortex. Pompo the Cinephile is the latest from G-Kids that had a release earlier this year with Bell. That opens on Wednesday. There's another anime film from director Tetsuro Araki, who has done things like Attack on Titan, that hits Netflix on Thursday called Bubble. And then we have another film from India hitting theaters this weekend called Runway 34. Of course, we've seen those films do well, both in the wide marketplace and also the specialty box office. Next week, I will also be releasing my annual list of predictions for the top 10 summer movies as far as domestic gross. I used to produce that episode for the Screen Junkie show and then I was on that episode and now I'm doing the episode by myself so you can decide for yourself whether that's an evolution or not. But it's something that I really enjoy and it's hard to believe we're, we're almost back to the summer movie season where we've got the Marvel movie opening the first weekend of May. Time really is flying. I'm sure to get one or two or more of them just embarrassingly wrong. So stay tuned for stage one of my embarrassment next week. If you want to see even more of what I'm up to, you can check me out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Merle. And of course, right here on the channel. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for watching. Bye.